Today's show is brought to you by Namely. When was the last time you checked your pay stub or picked benefits at work? Chances are it wasn't easy. HR software has been clunky and hard to use ever since HR has been a thing. One technology company takes a different approach. Namely is the only all-in-one HR, payroll, and benefits software employees love to use. Ready to clock in? No problem. Need to write a performance review? You can do that. Want to schedule some vacation time? Namely makes easy to do, even from your phone. Namely also uses social news feeds like Facebook, where employees can share updates, celebrate birthdays, and give shout-outs for a job well done. Namely doesn't just make work easier, it actually makes it a little more fun, too. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. If you're in HR or run your business, it's time to see Namely in action. Get a free demo by visiting namely.com slash decode. One more time, that's namely.com slash decode. See how you can build a better workplace with Namely. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the new CEO of Cambridge Analytica, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Mark Suster, a managing partner at Upfront Ventures. He joined the venture capital firm in 2007, but before then founded two companies, Build Online and then Coral, which was acquired by Salesforce. Mark, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me, but the red chair looks black. I know, we have a red chair. We could bring it in for you. I would feel more comfortable if you had a red chair. Well, we'll try. Well, you can go sit in it later after we're done with the interview. He's here at our offices in uh, San Francisco, but Mark is from Los Angeles, where Upfront Ventures is. So we want to talk about a wide range of things, including LA and everything else, but and, and also your recent sale of uh, Ring, which was one of your companies, to Amazon, which was a big deal. I have Ring at my house. Now Amazon runs everything. Do you like it? I love it, but now I don't want to... I was trying to get Amazon and Google out of my house because they do everything, and now Amazon's... Well, the nice thing about Ring is that it is outside your house. The camera's facing out rather than in, which is... Well, it's an important point because it was important to Jamie that the camera was facing out. I love Ring. So they're also... They've been a sponsor on this podcast, but I actually used the product before that. Um, It's a great product. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I want to talk about a whole bunch of things, including being in LA and, and things like that. So why don't we go over your history? I like to go through people's you know, resume, essentially. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got started in the business, and and then we'll get into L.A. and investing and where you think trends are going. Because you're pretty much the leading L.A. venture capitalist, right? Let me say this. Um, You worded it that I'm from L.A. I'm actually not from L.A. I grew up in Northern California, and I grew up a software developer. I Mm -hmm. started my career as a programmer. Yeah, so talk about that. I point that out because... Having a perspective of Silicon Valley where I built one of my startups, sold one of my startups, my wife used to work at Google. Like, we really understand, I think, the culture here. Right. I've been in LA for 10 years. Yeah, I don't mean to diminish LA. Oh, I'm not, I, no, I'm not no, a I just, I want to, anyone listening, I want them to understand that I really, I view the lens of the world through having grown up in Northern California. I lived abroad for 11 years, mm-hmm. I've worked in nine countries. I came back to the U.S., settled into Silicon Valley, and assumed that I was going to raise a family here here and And live here. And be a software developer or entrepreneur. Yeah, and in 2007, I moved to L.A. for two years. Mm -hmm. Why did you move? What was the thing? So wait, you were talk about your software development first. Let's get so you were doing software development. So I started my career as not packaged software, as custom software. Mm -hmm. So I worked for what's now Accenture. It was called Anderson Consulting as a programmer working on large corporate billing systems and security systems and stuff like that. I left in 1999 to build a startup. I raised capital. I built that company in London. We were in five countries. We sold software. 
back then they, it was called ASP. I don't know if you remember when it was called application service providers, and mm -hmm. then we called it yes, on I demand, do. and then SaaS, and then cloud. It's all the same shit. You know, we were building centralized services for large European companies back in the mm -hmm. late 90s. And I sold that company to a French publicly traded company called The Sword Group, and I moved back home. And when I moved here, I moved to Palo Alto, and I started building my second company. The timing for talking about this is interesting because we were building what Dropbox built mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. Dropbox existed. Right. And I sold that company to Salesforce, and we became Salesforce content management system. Okay. And you didn't stay at Salesforce. You I decided not to stay at Salesforce. You just want to be part of a big company? or? Yeah, I think at that point I was 39, and I had been running companies for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I think I was, felt like I was my own boss. And Salesforce is a wonderful company. I have very close friends who are still there and have been th there mm -hmm. through all the years. But it's very much Mark's company, Mark and right. Parker, and I was looking to do my own thing again. Right. And so talk about moving to us. So you thought you'd have this sort of serial entrepreneur kind of. So the fund that I'm with, it's Upfront Ventures. I actually right. run the fund. Mm -hmm. um, I've been running it since 2011. Mm -hmm. The founder, Yves Cisteron, was on my board. Ah. So they had invested in me. Mm -hmm. And so Yves said to me, why don't you come to L.A., learn the business, stay for two years, and then go open our Silicon Valley office. And right. that was Why the did you plan. want to go into venture from doing... I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into venture. Mm -hmm. I actually called him and said I wanted to do another startup. I thought sure, I was yeah, going to do my third. Doing. And yeah. he was looking for an operator because I think he recognized that increasingly capital was just capital. Right. And Anybody has money, right? And entrepreneurs were looking for people who had actually walked in their footsteps and done their right. job before. Right. Honestly, my thought at the time was it's worth a try. I was 39. If this works... This could be my career. And if it doesn't work, I could always yeah, go, back go back to being an entrepreneur. Yeah, right, so. right. And so you moved to L.A. And had you had you spent time down there? Did you know much about the tech? I had lived in L.A. from 91 to 94. Right. So I did my undergraduate at UC San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, there were no jobs when I graduated no. college in 91. It was a recession. I, I really wanted... Also, L.A. wasn't a tech center. Well, I wanted to live in San Francisco. Right? That was yeah. my goal, was to live right. in San Francisco, because right. I wanted to work in the tech sector. Right. But there were no jobs in right. 1991, so I took the job I could get because I really wanted to be a programmer, and mm -hmm. I got a job in L.A., and my first client was JPL, mm -hmm. Jet Propulsion Laboratory, yeah, where they designed, right. they designed rockets to right. put a man on the moon. And I traveled all over the country working for large corporate clients. So I worked in L.A. for Southern California Gas Company. I went out to Miami and worked for Florida Power & Light. My area of specialty was distributed computing. It, this mm -hmm. is pre-World Wide yeah. Web. Yeah. And we were working on how to take servers and connect them with clients and dealing with the network in between. It's called middleware. Mm -hmm. And what happens when a transaction doesn't complete and you have to roll it back and so on and so forth. And so I moved with Anderson at the end of 94, early 95, to set up an internet practice in Europe. Right. And I spent all my time with telcos, mm -hmm. helping them figure out how to launch an internet that era. Yeah. So when you got back to L.A., did you, were you worried about that idea? Because, I mean, let's talk, we're going to talk more about the L.A. market, but it hadn't been the center. They had all these sort of flame-outs, essentially. They had MySpace and then demand media. So this is, if I take you back even further, mm -hmm. in the emergence of the internet, what, L.A. was really good at was monetization. Right. And you know the saying that necessity is the mother of all invention mm -hmm. because they couldn't raise capital. They couldn't, they didn't have yep. big funds. Right. So they had to find a way to monetize. So Google's model was actually borrowed from Overture, which built GoTo.com. You probably remember that, mm -hmm. Bill Gross. And when Bill Gross went to TED and talked about a pay-per-click model, he stood on stage at TED 
and was booed. Mm-hmm. He was booed for talking about pay per click. Right, I remember that. He was walking to the elevator and a gentleman came up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder and introduced himself and said, I think that's a really amazing model. Could I be your first customer? It's a true mm-hmm. story, Bill will tell you if mm-hmm. you ask him. And his name was Jeff Bezos. Right. And he became the first big client of GoTo.com and he was doing right. pay per click and driving people to buy books. And it turned out that model worked so well that yeah, I was at that TEDco. I was at. Oh, you were. Ted it's, it's, Richard Saul Warman was running it. He got. He got. Jeff food. used to show up on his whatever the heck gadget he had, but he was little. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff was little then. And it was like the company people didn't really know it. Like yeah. This is you know mid to late nineties, and our firm was an investor in Overture, so that's right. how I know a lot of the Which story. Which then sold to Google. Eventually. Yeah. Uh, no, we sold, sold to Yahoo. Yahoo. That's yeah. right. That's right. I'm sorry. Overture went to Yahoo. That Overture. was their big. And then 1. Google bought, bought the technology. It was so. What, what Google bought is another LA company. So right. I want to point this out. So first of all, we created the category. Google won. And they won for reasons where I could tell you if you're interested. But Google won. And we still built a company that sold for $1.6 billion. Then another, so Bill Gross graduated from Caltech. Another yeah. Caltech alumni was and named- in Pasadena, started his group in Pasadena. Idea Lab started yeah. in Pasadena as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, another Caltech graduate named Gil L. Boz yeah. created a company called Applied Semantics. Mm-hmm. And what Applied Semantics did is they didn't do search the way that uh, Overture was doing. They would read what was on your web page. They would look at semantic analysis and they would serve ads based on what, you know, keyword density. Mm-hmm. And also based on clickstream of what clicks you took before you got to the page. Well, that became Google AdSense. Mm-hmm. So both Google AdWords and Google AdSense, the two most profitable businesses ever absolutely. created, were initiated in Los Angeles. Right, absolutely. We didn't win. No. So when you're saying it was a place where th- people thought about monetization, was that a problem? They didn't, they didn't think about just spending whatever to get to... Necessity all the companies, is the mother of all invention. But all the companies that succeeded were like the Amazon, which didn't think of that at all. They were initially... When you think about Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. where people will hand you $30 million and tell you to go generate the next amazing internet service and try not to monetize because let's try mm-hmm. to build really big and, and capture the market, you have the luxury of not monetizing. When right. someone says, I'll give you $3 million and that's all you're getting, you got to make money. So let's look at who came but out of- It's only 400 miles. It's not even like, or whatever, 300 miles. But, but you know, especially back then, Silicon Valley VCs, most of the funds were like $150 million. Right. They weren't like These $10 billion funds, yeah. that they are today. They were $150 million and they literally didn't want to travel more than 25 miles because right. the idea yeah, Mark was- Mark Andreessen wouldn't go past Hobie, so I remember I, I, had to meet, I have to meet you at Bucks. I'm not going to yeah. go past Bucks, right? Yeah. Like, so those were the days. And if you look at Commission Junction- Mm-hmm. And you look at Price Grabber and Shopzilla and a whole bunch of these lower my bills. They were all finding ways to arbitrage money and to drive mm-hmm. eyeballs to websites. And they were all monetization techniques. Right, techniques. And why was that? Why? Why? Again, I think LA is a place where people have to make money. Make money, right. So look at MySpace, okay? Right. So MySpace actually came out of a direct marketing initiative. Mm-hmm. They started by direct marketing face creams and stuff like that. Right. And it wasn't working and the internet had crashed and they realized that they could go buy a bunch of email lists from all these VC-backed companies that didn't mm-hmm. succeed. So they bought all the email lists 
And they started emailing everybody and driving them to a social network called MySpace. That's mm-hmm. how MySpace was born. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. don't know that yeah. either. Yeah. But it was Data born, portability. It was born out of selling face creams uh-huh. initially. Yeah, there were some controversial face creams in there, by the way. Yes, I agree <laughs> they with They burned you. people's face off. I'm not recall, <laughs> as I recall, it was, a, it was, I was a sketchy group of people. I was not an investor. I was not around. There the were some Bitcoin people seem There ethical. were some good people. There were yeah. some less good people, as, as is not always the case. Not my recollection, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know some of the good people. Yeah. So in any event, if you look at, we had a failed start with Overture. We didn't become Google. We had a failed start with MySpace. It didn't become Facebook. But it was inevitable that it would start to happen. And what I think is unique about LA, at least in consumer web, we can talk about hard tech in a minute, but in consumer web, we really understand the sensibility of brands, of consumers, of marketing, of how they make decisions, but also of design. So look at Gen Z, two of the leading products created in the last five years in the consumer space, Snapchat, LA-based, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and Tinder, mm-hmm. LA-based. Yeah. And I don't think that's by accident. And you look at other companies, people tend not to associate with LA, but Riot Games, League mm-hmm. of Legends, bought for $10 yeah, billion dollars, ultimately created in LA. Right. Well, we'll get to that, like why that is, what's different. So when you went down there, you went there to, did you consider yourself an LA venture capitalist or was that going to be your focus? Because you are, you do, you are kind of the center of LA tech. I went for two years Mm -hmm. and my wife worked at Google. Right. And I promised her we would come back. Right. She did not want to live in LA. Uh I actually promised her we would never live in LA. So I broke that promise. Right. She saw the film Training Day, Ethan Hawke in the bathtub with a gun in his mouth. And she's like, I'm not living there. (laughs) And after nine months, no joke, she said, I'm not leaving. LA is a a wonderful place. It's 19 million people. It's very diverse. It's not monocultural. So anyway, so I was there. And what I said to her, aside from the fact that she fell in love with it, what I said to her is, there's very few VCs here that no. have any amount of software skills, technology background, operating yep. experience. And I think, I, okay, it's a smaller pond, but I right. could be a much bigger fish. Yeah, yeah, no, there's an expert. What was the guy who was talking, a very famous uh, film writer, and he said, wrote, I think he telegrammed his brother, um, millions to be made out here and everyone's an idiot. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, something like that. It was a very famous Hollywood uh, Telegram. So all of all of the VCs that existed in the 80s and 90s, like they all went away. Right. From LA down to San Diego. Mm-hmm. And the emergence of like Dana Settle with Graycroft, mm-hmm. right. what's now Upfront it's small. Ventures. It's a small group. Yeah, there's a small number of us, but they like Dana was new right. to LA back then. Right, right. So there were right. a number of these newer funds that have been created in the last and 10 did, years. But, but do you consider yourself an LA venture capitalist then? Or how do you explain Upfront? How, so it was so started? Upfront is a national firm. Right. We've been around for 21 years. So mm-hmm. we're the oldest VC in LA. We're also the largest. You do um, have the coolest offices. We too. have a pretty cool office. Yeah. You VC know. offices in LA are better than here. <laughs> but uh, the... Idea for us is we're not a regional fund. We do 40% of our investments in LA, 60% are outside of That's LA. That's a lot, 40%. Yeah. 40% is a lot, but like think of it this way. A city of 19 million people, it is obviously the second largest city in the United States, and it is the third largest venture market. It's the fastest growing. 
why wouldn't we use our advantage to look at the top end of the funnel of every deal created locally and Mm -hmm. then just be more selective? But what I don't want to do is have concentration risk where every Mm -hmm. deal we have is in Southern California. So we do 25% Bay Area, about 15% New York City. Mm -hmm. But we have deals internationally. So two of us are dual citizens. I'm a dual citizen of the US and UK. So I've Mm -hmm. done two deals there. My partner, Eve, who founded the fund, he's got, I think, three deals based out of France. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we're not afraid to get on airplanes and go do deals elsewhere. And talk very, in this section, about the L.A. scene. How do you look at it, though? Because you are the most prominent venture capitalist in Los Angeles, probably. The way that I look at Los Angeles is this. First of all, we have incredible tech talent. So we have more top 25 engineering universities in greater Los Angeles than anywhere else in the country. And again, that shouldn't be a surprise because... We're the second largest city behind New York. There's 19 million people in greater LA. There's seven to seven Mm -hmm. and a half million people in greater Bay Area. So we have this incredible pool of talent. And you mentioned it before, like if you're a talented um, engineer, you either went into aerospace and defense, you went into Hollywood, or you moved up north to join a startup. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want to move up here. Right. You know, there's better weather, better lifestyle, more diversity, Mm -hmm. lower cost of living, a lot more going on. And especially when you think about so many of these people being like 23 to 35, they prefer to be in LA, but the jobs weren't there. And that's something that changed. Mm -hmm. And because that's changed, it's not just that those people, if you go to UCLA or USC or Caltech or Harvey Mudd or Cal Poly Pomona or any of these colleges, you want to stay, but now we're getting people moving down from the Bay Area. And Mm -hmm. it's not just entrepreneurs. A lot of VCs are moving down. You have Mm -hmm. David Lee, you have Chris Saka, Fred Wilson spends every winter there now. Uh, so you have a lot more people who are coming to so, LA. So do you, when you create that cohesion of a group of people, because one of the things that is has been powerful about Silicon Valley has been you have the VCs, the schools, Stanford, uh, Stanford yep. especially, um, and then you have the entrepreneurs and sort of iron triangle of, of a situation. And, and talk about what the atmosphere in LA is then for that, because you have, you know, Harvey Mudd, you've got a lot of schools, but it's still not quite the same thing. It doesn't feel quite as tight when it, I'm down there. It definitely, you guys have tried. Well, listen, let me say this, is we're not going to replace Silicon Valley, and that's not even the objective. I think we can build a dynamic, valuable ecosystem without... It's like, you know, would Chicago really replace New York as the financial capital? Mm-hmm. Would Seattle replace LA as the creative video capital of the world? Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. There's just 40 years of developing those communities mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. So we're not trying to do that. But I would tell you that what I used to complain about was what I call the invisible startup. And the Mm -hmm. invisible startup is someone really talented. There was a team out of USC that were security experts, and they created a company. They raised $5 million from Coastal Ventures. This is right when I arrived. And then Coastal Ventures moved them up north, which I don't blame Coastal Ventures, and I don't Mm -hmm. blame this company. But that company is called Lookout, and Mm -hmm. it's now north of a billion-dollar valuation. It's a very prominent mobile security but they were Angelinos, like they should have mm-hmm. stayed. And so right. I think there's a million invisible deaths that we mm-hmm. died of people who relocated. And I think those, the, the reason I'm so passionate about more capital being in LA is I think those people didn't want to leave LA and I mm-hmm. think we can retain them now. With the capital yeah. there that they don't mm-hmm. have to, or they aren't forced to move, like come up here so we can be close. If to. people write the first check, the first three to $5 million in LA and you establish your team, you're not likely to move. Yeah. Before we move on, because I do want to talk about uh, some of the companies there and why they went up and down. Um, you hate the term Silicon Beach. I do. 
to explain that. Well, you and I had a terrible Twitter fight over it. You know, uh, I try not to get in too many Twitter fights these yeah, days. Yeah, but, don't get one with me. Uh, that, that I know for sure. <laughs> um, listen, so first of all, I think Beach emphasizes the worst perception that people have of Los Angeles right. that we're not serious. Right. The vast majority of high quality companies are east of the 405, anywhere but the beach. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, first of all, be derivative to Silicon mm -hmm. Can Valley. Can you explain east of 405 to people? Oh, yeah, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, okay. I just so, so from the beach until the 405, which is the north south freeway, Santa you, just Monica. Have, you just have to watch the Californians on Saturday Night yeah. Live. You know, yeah. you take the 405 to the one yeah. time. <laughs> but um, it's about four miles from the beach to the 405, and yeah. that's called the west side. And the west yeah. side of LA, it's very expensive. Yeah, Bel Air. Yeah, no, Bel Air is actually east of the 405. Oh, so okay. you've got Brentwood, Santa Monica, Brentwood, and Brentwood. Venice. And right. Malibu, right? And that's what. And those are all beach communities, and they're beautiful. That's where and I live. And there's a lot of startups there. There's too. a lot of startups, so you tend to see a lot of people starting there, and then you migrate elsewhere because it's just too expensive. Like you wouldn't right. build a startup on Fisherman's Wharf in mm -hmm. San Francisco, right? It's not the right I environment might. for I it. I might, Mark. You might. I you might. might. Oh, actually, it's probably these crab days. <laughs> and yeah, and the clam chowder bowls, sea sea lions. There you go. Like it that. smells. It yeah, smells there. It does. Um, and so what I don't want to do is emphasize the beach mm -hmm. yeah. and I don't want to be derivative uh -huh. to Silicon Valley because I don't think we need to. I think we can right. be proud of what we have. So right. I, I like to call it LA Tech. LA Tech, yeah. Yeah, just emphasize. I mean, I know it's not like some glamorous name, yeah. but neither is Silicon Beach. That's it's just true. derivative. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Do you like the beach, Mark? I do like the beach. All right, okay. I do. I mean, I'm not a surfer. I'm not a quintessential. I'm not 6'3", blonde, six-pack. Yeah, yeah. I'm a nebbish, Jewish, like, computer programmer. Yeah, yeah. You don't look like you can be on Laguna Beach. No. I'm just, neither could I. But in any case, all right, when we get back, we're going to talk more about some of the investments uh, Mark has done at Upfront and about some of the big LA companies. Because even though, you know, it isn't regional, kind of it. Like, there is there is a regionness about things like that. We're here with Mark Suster. Um, he is a partner, a managing partner at Upfront. Front Ventures, and we're going to talk more about Los Angeles and some trends. Today's show is brought to you by Freshly. Meal kits are so last year. Freshly is the new way to get dinner on the table in no time. Their chefs send you delicious, freshly prepared meals so you can eat better without any of the work. No cooking or cleanup required. Their meals are delivered to your door fresh and ready whenever you are. Just heat them up when you're hungry. My sons ate everything Freshly sent to our house, and they loved it. I did not actually get a bite because they ate it all. Freshly chefs and nutritionists make sure that every meal is all natural, nutritious, and made with high-quality ingredients. So now you can come home late and still have a delicious chef-cooked meal waiting for you. Just choose from the rotating menu of 30 options. Try Freshly, and you'll see what it's like to put zero effort into making dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash decode and get $25 off your first order of six meals. That's $25 off plus free shipping at Freshly.com slash decode. We're back with Mark Suster from Upfront Ventures in Los Angeles. And um, we've been talking about sort of the L.A. tech scene, which Mark refuses to call it Silicon Beach. I agree with him, um, actually. Um, but uh, he wants to call it L.A. tech. Let's talk a little bit about L.A. tech. Is it, is it again, you're not, you, you, have, you have investments all over the world, but you have 40% of them in Los Angeles. Talk to me a little bit about the L.A. scene, because what seems to have happened, there's been one of the things that helps Silicon Valley is there's so many successes in one place. There's more than one, essentially. And L.A., the experience has been one at a time. And then many of them have flamed out. MySpace, big and hot, then not. Uh, Demand Media was the next one. And now Snapchat is struggling, even though I think the world of Snapchat, I think it's a really cool company. Um, but it's never had that. Do you need to have that big 
group of companies there, or is that not necessary? Well, I'll say a couple of things. When a company succeeds, you end up with a lot of important things. One is what we call recycled capital. Right. So people right. make a lot of money and reinvest it in younger entrepreneurs. You end up with mentors, mm-hmm. but you end up... So what Silicon Valley has an advantage of is people who have seen scale. Right. Because you could have That's a, a really great engineer point. from Indiana or St. Louis or Florida, and that engineer is no less qualified than someone who's from Silicon Valley, but if they worked at LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. Scale or Salesforce or Facebook, they have an advantage. They understand both not only how to scale, but they understand consumer behavior in a way you don't if you haven't seen scale. So an example, when I moved to LA, I funded a company I know you're aware of called Maker Studios. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did- Sold to Disney. We sold to Disney. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did is I recruited a former colleague of mine from Salesforce to move down to LA to be the CTO. Mm -hmm. He had seen scale at Salesforce. He stayed for five years after we were acquired. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to build a company that could scale. So he hired 55 engineers. So we built a real engineering team at Maker Studios. And so we ended up selling- he stayed for his you know, lockup period and he's got another startup now. And so that repeat, rinse and repeat process yeah. is happening more in LA than it ever has right, in the past. Right, but there has to be a few companies like Google, yeah. But now Spondus. people have seen scale at Tinder, they've seen mm-hmm. scale at Right Games, they've seen mm-hmm. scale at Snapchat. And actually you're seeing people break out of SpaceX. People forget that SpaceX is an LA-based yes, company. Right. They forget that Elon lives in Bel Air. He mm-hmm. lives in LA. Nobody forgets that. <laughs> but <laughs> Elon's I, his own little planet over he there. Is. He's, he's not, I don't think he mixes a whole lot. I think lot, he's so. not even on the planet. Yeah, he's, he's stratospheric. I think he's the greatest entrepreneur of our times. But I have seen him out at dinner. I've sat next to him at a dinner party, and mm-hmm. it does happen because he lives in LA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he used to live up here, actually, if yeah. I recall. I remember him at x.com. That's yes, when I met which him. became PayPal. PayPal. Well, no, he merged with them. He merged, merged with, with them. them. Yeah, yeah. Combined um, company. So, but when you have one, it does create, if there's problems, like Snapchat right now, for example. Let's actually go back. What happened from your perspective to the MySpace and demand? And, and th- those are all individual problems that they each had. So... MySpace in particular, I think, didn't architect its technology right for scale. So I think Mm -hmm. that was one of the problems. Number two is, I think they made a mistake, which is Rupert Murdoch, when uh, it was YouTube was bought by Google. Mm -hmm. And it really pissed them off because they wanted to buy YouTube because YouTube became successful on MySpace. Yeah. And so video became popular in the era of social media. Photos became popular. So what he didn't have was he didn't have the currency the way that Google did because it had this stratospheric sure. public market valuation that it could pay $1.65 billion to buy YouTube. And he was really pissed off. He went out and bought the trophy prize, which was Photo Bucket, right. because he thought, oh, I'll buy the photo one. And then he shut down the API. Mm-hmm. So he didn't allow developers to build on no, MySpace. That's and that's right when Facebook opened up. So you had Zynga and you had Slide and you had Rocky. It was a mentality. They had opened up and they opened up the platform community at exactly the time MySpace shut it down. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really what happened. And Rupert just thought he could innovate internally. Facebook eventually, as you know, kind of shut down their platform as well, sure. but they were open at the right time. And yeah, it was well, just not right arch- now. It's coming home to roost at this very moment. It was moment. architected better, and that's a story I'm happy to take yeah, on if you'd like to. But I Please. will tell you, the example is Amit Kapoor, who was the COO, yep. Stanford graduate COO at of MySpace, then went and created Gravity, another LA-based mm-hmm. company, which we backed, and we sold that to AOL. Mm-hmm. And Amit now has a venture fund and is funding companies so based there are, in So there creates that, the seed. The yeah, the kind of around. rinse and repeat. Right. Uh, I've got 
capital to spend. I've seen scale. I'm going to create my next generation. Is geography startup. an issue because it's so spread out? That's another the concentration. I mean, I always think of of Los Angeles as New York. If you squeeze the, the if you slapped everything down, it just spreads. Out. I know you'll think that I'm spinning this, but mm-hmm. I'm trying not to. I think that's mythology. Okay. I really do because if you look at the Bay Area. You've got the crowd who lives north of the bridge, yeah. and they'll never go to San Jose. They'll right. never go to Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. They only will take the boat over to San Francisco. So you have the San Francisco community. You have the East Bay community. You have the Palo Alto Menlo Park community. You have the San Jose community. Like People don't do that in the Bay Area. You'd right. sooner get on a plane and fly to L.A. than you would be to go to San Jose. Right. The same is true in L.A. You have pockets. So our main pockets now are Santa Monica, Venice, mm-hmm. which is the west side. Where Google you, has a big Snapchat. Has, and they're moving. Well, so all they've moving. all moved down to the second pocket, which is going to be 20 Playa. years from now the big thing in L.A., which is Playa. Mm-hmm. But I that's, think— Explain where that is. That's near the so airport. That's down just north of the airport. So mm-hmm. it's about— 20 minutes south of Santa Monica. But the important thing is it draws from Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, and Hermosa Beach mm-hmm. south of the airport. And the reason that's important is you can draw all the young people because the young people want to live down there, there and yeah. it's, it's more affordable. But it's also by freeways. So you can take the 405, which we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. You can easily get in there. And so it was undeveloped land and you'll see a lot of development down there. Yeah, but it was a longer, controversial development initially. It was. Yeah. And what I think you'll see over time is actually the growth of downtown Los Angeles mm-hmm. because there's tons of industrial space. It's much cheaper and you can actually get there from North LA from mm-hmm. a, over in the Valley, but you can also get there from East mm-hmm. and it's a lot more affordable and it draws from many more parts of Los Angeles. And you probably know this, we actually have public transportation now. You can take a train, a light rail from Santa Monica to downtown. You can go from North Hollywood to downtown. So as the rail system has been built up, I think it becomes a lot more commutable. Right. And then, so you have that area is the downtown, you know, Nasty Gal is down. There's a whole bunch that were down there. So a lot of people that are in e-commerce are downtown LA. Downtown. So media and e-commerce has really been Been in downtown, downtown LA. LA. And then not much in Beverly Hills in that area, right? No, because Beverly Hills is too expensive. It's right. like building a startup in Atherton. Yeah, but you've Tinder, got, where's Tinder's around there, right? Don't they? So Tinder- it was in Beverly was it, Yeah, but that's because IAC. Yeah. It was started at IAC. But you have um, West Hollywood yeah. has a lot of stuff. So you have West Hollywood, you have North Hollywood, you have downtown LA, you have the West Side. But there's, and then the types of companies. T- you're saying there's a lot of creative stuff because I consider Snapchat a creative company more than an emotional company. I don't know how else to put it. You know, like it has more creativity. So I'm going to give you a metaphor for okay. how I think about consumer businesses. Mm-hmm. We'll okay. talk about B2B in a minute. But consumer businesses, you have infrastructure. So in order to build, let's say, in the era of shipping, in the era of airplanes, you needed airports, you needed deep mm-hmm. water ports for shipping. And then once you did, valuable stuff happened on top of that infrastructure. The infrastructure of the internet had to be built first. So it was routers and switches and databases and browsers and caching software. And all of that happened in Silicon Valley, or most of that happened in Silicon Valley. But once that was built, I would argue that everything you do as a consumer on the internet falls into three categories. I call them the three C's, Mm -hmm. content, commerce, and communications. Mm -hmm. So when you think of it, you are spending time because you want to buy shit, Mm -hmm. right? So those are done from e-commerce companies. You want to communicate with other people, you're lonely or bored, and you want to consume media and information. Mm -hmm. And I think 
not just LA, but LA and New York are really well positioned for the uh, three Cs. Because they're media-oriented. And, and we also understand consumer brands, and we understand how to create products, and we understand international trade. I mean, mm-hmm. 43% of all products that come into America come through LA. It comes mm-hmm. through either Long Beach or the LA port. Mm-hmm. So we're a great import-export. I think we're really the entry point for Asia into mm-hmm. the United States. Really, you are, yeah. But we also are like the northern capital of South America. I mean, there's five million Mexican people in Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. unlike what Trump would try to get you to believe, mm-hmm. the vast majority of them are hardworking. They're not first-generation immigrants. They're mm-hmm. professional. They're not all educated. A lot of them are educated. Mm-hmm. And they're productive. But we have a large population of South Koreans, the largest population outside of South Korea. We have the largest population of Persians outside of Iran. Mm-hmm. And so it's this great melange of people that are building those three Cs. And we also have the celebrities that can endorse products. So back to Ring, you may know that Shaquille O'Neal was our spokesperson. Right, right. So if you go into a Best Buy and you look at 12 products and they're all announcing their different video specs and this has this much storage and this much RAM and this Wi-Fi, consumers don't want to buy products like that. Mm-hmm. And so having, the mentality is yeah, marketing, just, media. So we have the ability to brand, market, have endorsements, have consumers be able to figure out how to buy products. So I think we do well in the three Cs. And then you look at the hard sciences. I mean, there's a Computer. reason SpaceX is there. It's, mm-hmm. you know, because we have JPL and Northrop Grumman and mm-hmm. we, you know, we're the place where there was the birth of the aerospace industry, you know, Howard Hughes. And so yeah. all of that talent is still in LA. It's just never been in the startup community. Right, right. And and what what's the negatives? Is it just the hard computing or or the geekishness? Because I find most, I, I, this, I, I think of it in a similar way. I find LA companies more emotional. I don't mean that in the negative term. And the ones in Silicon Valley very cold. Like it's a very different, there's not a lot of storytelling. There's not, except for Apple, obviously. Yeah, um, Apple's certainly an exception. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this is that There are categories I don't think LA will be good at, and one of them is SaaS, software as a service. Because to be a product manager, to be a sales rep, to be pre-sales or post-sales support, Mm -hmm. there's just such a concentration of those people because of historically, you know, Oracle, PeopleSoft, uh, Siebel, Salesforce Now, Workday. And all those people are aggregated here. It's really hard to find experienced people in LA have done that. And I think we'll create some of those, but I don't think we do as well on Mm -hmm. that. But we do really well on trade, transportation, logistics. Uh, We do really well, I think, on hard sciences. There's a great robotics program at USC. So we're starting to see a lot more robotics come from LA. Is there more cooperation from the universities there too? Because you've got USC, UCLA, Harvey Mudd, Corona, all the, Mm -hmm. you know, just... I don't think so. I mean, I would love to tell you that there is, but I don't think so. Why I think, is that? Because Stanford's been such a critical element to Silicon Valley. I think Valley. Stanford is really unique. I think even the UC system overall hasn't done a great job at trying yeah, to figure out how to support entrepreneurs or how to spin out companies because they had a royalty system and they didn't think about the equity culture. I think Stanford's really led the country in that. So, But why not? I mean, Harvey Mudd, come on, or Caltech. I don't know why it is. I can tell you at Caltech, my perception, mm-hmm. even though we have incredibly successful alumni from mm-hmm. there, is that it's more theoretical school. Mm-hmm. It's less practical applications. So MIT, I think, has done a better job in the startup world. Mm-hmm 
at creating startups and breeding that culture. Like the places I love, I love Carnegie Mellon. I love for, for startups. Cars, yeah. uh, I like actually Wharton is doing a fantastic job of creating startups. They have these combined programs that are management and uh, computer science together. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've done a tremendous job what in LA. What could happen? How could that be done? People have been trying ever since I've been there. I don't. I wish I had a good answer. They set up tech transfer offices. We went and spent a bunch of time on universities. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that could happen. I, I don't know what the winning formula is. Do you know I've why? tried. You know why? Just no, but like outside of Stanford, where else does it happen? Like, You're right. I, MIT I mean, doesn't translate it as well. Cal, I don't. Yeah. I mean, Cal's a wonderful place. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the same level of startups no, come out of Cal. It's right, right across the bay. Right, exactly. You're right. Um, so when, when you're thinking about those companies, obviously Snapchat's been the latest um, big name. And seen as, can you diagnose? Were you an investor in Snapchat? I was not. Yeah. Why? Were you offered it? You had to have been. Listen, here's what I tell people about Snapchat, and I authentically believe this, even (laughs) though it sounds like post hoc rationalization. When they went out to raise, there were a million photo sharing companies. There were. I didn't think that it would be exceptional relative to all the other ones I was seeing. I was looking at a company called Scout. Mm-hmm. And Scout was like location based networking, and you know, a lot of young kids. And I was really nervous, honestly, as a parent about Mm -hmm. protecting children Mm -hmm. and what would happen uh, if children were groomed on a website like that. I was super close to investing and the founder is a wonderful guy. He's out of, um, I think he's Finnish, if I remember remember correctly, maybe uh, Swedish. Mm -hmm. And he spent so much time, energy and effort in building systems to protect the children, but still three children were raped through mm-hmm. the system that were mm-hmm. groomed. And you can't control everything, right? right? But I just had so much nervousness over investing in sure. something. And at the time, Snapchat was inappropriate pictures mm-hmm. being shared. And I just, I, I felt like that was, they hadn't built stories. Right. It hadn't been a mess, you know, the same kind of app that it's become. So that was that. And then all of a sudden it took off and it became massive and Mark famously tried to create an app to complete, buy it and then create an app called, was it Poke or something to compete with it? And that actually just gave it it more oxygen. And by the time it just really had taken off, I don't think I could have competed in one because Benchmark came in and they offered them, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think order magnitude like 12 million at a 60 pre. Mm Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, we were a smaller fund. And I, I'm not saying we would have won it if we right. would have competed, but Benchmark had the success across their portfolio to take a bet like that. Mm-hmm. And again, this is mm-hmm. many years ago. These days, a lot bigger checks are being written. Sure. I just think even if I wanted to compete, I don't think I would have won it by then. So it's a rare exception of one that went from super early stage, Jeremy Liu giving him 500K because he was spreading around Mm -hmm. a lot of bets on talented teams and he got a few of them very right. And then just immediately stratospheric success where I couldn't have won it. What about now? What did they do? Because it was, you know, an IPO. Yeah, You you take them where you get them and now it's a big IPO. Um, so Tinder was owned by someone else, so it wasn't. And I'm sorry, what's the question you're asking? What, what do you imagine's happened now with them? Obviously, Facebook came right back and so managed to there's, there's a few, do Instagram stories. There's a few things that I think Silicon Valley reporting gets wrong about Snapchat, mm-hmm. and there's a few things that maybe I could elaborate sure, on. Sure, please. So I think the narrative in Silicon Valley, because so many of the people that comment on Snapchat are not avid young users of the product, and they compare it to Instagram. 
I think Snapchat really is more like WhatsApp than Instagram. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it has a network effect Mm -hmm. where once people are communicating with all their friends on it, it's very hard to disrupt that. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's Mm -hmm. very hard to disrupt. So I think it's a lot more sustainable than people think. Number two is... They went from brand advertising, which helped them grow very fast because you didn't have to prove it to go sell Mm -hmm. a $2 million campaign. You didn't have to prove efficacy. And they shifted it towards a direct marketing or Mm -hmm. a CPA model where people now are doing a lot more DR. Mm -hmm. And that's more sustainable because it's direct bidding and they have a bidding Mm -hmm. platform. Um, And they've shifted all that revenue without falling off a cliff, which I I think is a monumental achievement that people don't talk about. The things that I think they didn't get right were twofold. Number one is I don't think they understood the world of influencers well enough. Mm-hmm. And I think Evan really was reluctant to serve them. Yeah. yeah. And but yeah, I it's think it's his personality. It's his personality. Oh, he and, didn't marry a supermodel too, you know. <laughs> and they chose not to lean into that. And a lot of those people ended up at Instagram. And I think you could have sucked the oxygen out of the room and enabled them to stay <laughs> on Snapchat and would have been harder to get Instagram to bring them over. Number two is I believe that you had to build a management infrastructure that over time learns how to decentralize power and to hand off power and build a hierarchy and a campus and a company culture that can withstand uh, the trauma and the changes. And I don't think they've done that. And that'll be their big challenge going forward. Yeah, do you think they can do it? I mean, look at Facebook with Mark. I don't know. It's hard. I don't know. Okay, but at least Facebook has a campus and a culture. Yes, yeah, yeah. You have Cheryl that you know, at least has had enough power to build organizational structure sure. that sure. I don't think Snapchat really invested in. Right, and they need to do that. I do, think, are you, are you uh, worried about their, believe. what do you imagine they need, so those two things, and yeah. they, and I agree with you on the communications part. I think they're much more robust. They're also much more innovative. Facebook just borrows and borrows and doesn't come up with it's, anything It's fresh. the funniest thing to me because if the situations were reversed and Snapchat was a Northern California company and Instagram was an LA-based company, Everybody up here would be screaming bloody murder about how we're stealing IP. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, nobody seems to care. I, I asked someone about this recently. He said, it, I asked a VC. Mm-hmm. He said, well, honestly, people do care, but no one wants to complain about Facebook because they still buy all our companies. Uh-huh, that's interesting. You know, actually, I did an interview, a podcast with Kevin Sistrom. He just, mm-hmm. he just flat out said, yeah, we're still it. That's what we did. They, they, he said they built Shamelessly. a radio. Well, he just said it. Like, he didn't even bother. And I appreciated that, actually. He said, you know, they built a radio and we built a better radio. So what? Did they have the things on radios? And I was like, hmm, okay. All right. <laughs> You're going to defend your behavior. That's fine. They have, Instagram has reached a point where some of the product is better than Snapchat. Some yeah. of the product is better. Yeah. And I think Snapchat's paying attention. But yeah. I think Snapchat also has an innovation engine of things that are in the pipeline that They're are coming. And They're 100% people- more cre- creative. It's not innovative. They're more creative. Look, and that's look, the difference. Look at even like Bitmoji. Yeah. And look at the success of Bitmoji and bringing in characters into your yeah. stories. You know, what we talk about augmented reality, but really they kind of led in augmented reality. They did. Like, and 100%. so the question is, can they keep that innovation yeah, engine hard. coming? I yeah, don't know. that's hard. All right, we're here with Mark Suster. Um, he is a venture capital at Upfront Ventures in Los Angeles talking about LA. We're going to talk about the broader stories, but I do want to get to Ring in our next section and more uh, about where he thinks venture capital is going, especially with the huge amounts of money from SoftBank and others and how it's changing. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Sure, your bank or PayPal can get you money from A to B, 
but that transfer will cost you more than it should, a lot more. That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends who were frustrated by their bank's bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise, people sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee, so it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said, it's important that my bank gets some extra money. Test it out for free at transferwise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's transferwise.com slash podcast. It's a wise way to send money. We're here with Mark Suster. He is a venture capitalist in Los Angeles at Upfront Ventures. He runs the firm, which is a really cool firm down there. You just recently had a big hit with Ring. You explain how that happened. You sold it to Amazon, but pre so, that. Jamie Siminoff is a longtime entrepreneur in LA. I try to explain this to people who invest in venture funds because they all say, well, can't the Silicon Valley funds just fly down and mm-hmm. do all the best deals? The, the reality is a lot of the people we're backing, we've known for 10 years. So right. Jamie created a company called PhoneTag. I don't know if you ever used that, but it was a great product. Mm-hmm, uh, I did. In the early days mm-hmm. of voicemail, where most of us didn't want to sit and listen to voicemail all day, it created transcriptions for you. I think the company name was Similscribe. The product was PhoneTag. So I knew Jamie through that. He then created a second company. It was called Unsubscribe. It wasn't for me, but he was creating products, innovating Then he created something called Edison Labs, and Edison Labs was going to start spinning out a lot of companies. And they came up with this idea they called DoorBot. Mm -hmm. And I was hanging out with Jamie at a local conference, and he was telling me about DoorBot, and he said it was security doorbells. And I thought, that's a clever idea. You know, I've Mm -hmm. got ADT Mm -hmm. as an alarm system, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of a crappy system. They kind of provide crappy service. There's no video. And I believe in computer vision. And I think there's a huge trend towards uh, not just video, but video and laser and infrared and other ways to interpret the physical world with computing devices. And that's what Jamie was building. And I didn't know would people care or not, but I knew he was a great entrepreneur. So we brought him in. And my partner, Greg Bettinelli, was new to the fund. Mm -hmm. It was, I think, his first deal. Mm -hmm. The first deal he took over became Goat, which is another company we haven't talked about, doing hundreds of millions in sales, LA-based. And Greg really was a large part of the reason why Goat was created. But this was his first de novo deal was Ring. And, you know, we knew Jamie and we and just wanted to back for a little bit his too. vision. There was with so, computer complaints. And- so we co-led the seed round mm-hmm. and they launched Which the product. how much? What did you put in there? I think in total the round was like a million and a half dollars, right. something like that. And he sold $3.1 million of product like that. It right. was amazing. And they sent him out. And this is the thing about hardware. Oh, if yeah. you have problems in hardware, you can't just do an update. So, yeah, we struggled somewhat with product quality early days, but for a company that was so new, so innovative, so ahead of its market, I think they did a fantastic job. And Jamie's the consummate service professional. So we raised the next round with True Ventures. We participated Mm -hmm. also in the A round. And then then he had enough capital where he replaced a lot of the malfunctioning products and he built a better version and then a better version and then a better version. 
Well, Shaq came in later, but uh, the, where we really struggled was the next round of capital mm -hmm. because there was a Silicon Valley narrative. That hardware didn't, they were, well, they had spent a lot of money on hardware. The narrative was Nest would beat us. Oh, Nest, yeah. Yeah, and they just kept saying, well, Nest is eventually going to do this and Dropcam's mm -hmm. going to do this, and right. they never did. Like, they never- right. Well, they, they did. They just did. Look at their product. They basically copied Ring verbatim. They did, verbatim. and they have very nice commercials, I'll have to say. For years, yes. though, they really struggled yeah. to innovate where Ring has outpaced paste them at every step. And so actually it was a venture fund set up by a home builder who understood the market, which was Shea Ventures. Mm -hmm. Now I think they're called Calibrate now that stepped in and led that round. And then Kleiner Perkins came in mm -hmm. and Richard Branson came in mm -hmm. and then Shaq. Right, right. And you, and, and, but the idea was that, that you couldn't do it. And also hardware was hard. They had struggled here with... Um, Oh God, not Fitbit. A bunch of them like that. They had they there was sort of an anti-hardware thing after they poured lots of money into it. Who's they? Venture Capitals here had the narrative that hardware was too hard, essentially. So the difference, like I'm not a Fitbit mm -hmm. negative person, so right. I'm not trying to say negative right. things about them. But here's the difference with Ring. With Ring, if you buy a security doorbell, you use it every month and you get utility out of it right. every single day. Mm -hmm. With Fitbit, a certain number of people get huge value out of it forever and a certain number of people, it goes on yeah. the desk, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And with Ring, that doesn't happen. No, I, I And so we have a huge, huge attach rate of people who not just buy the Ring, but they yeah. buy the subscription, subscription product. Yeah, which I did. And so you, he started with the doorbell and then he did a flood lamp, which you can just literally unscrew your flood lamp yeah. and, and, and screw it in. And then he had a stick-up cam and then he sold like a solar charging unit and then he right. sold a sign that went outside your house. And because he delighted customers, they kept coming back and buying more sure, products. Absolutely. And so why sell to Amazon? This is a huge market. You know, listen, I Nest think, was coming. I think it's not just Nest coming. It's also Amazon wanted to be serious in the category. And I think Jamie took a view that here's a chance for me to not only get a great financial return for investors and employees and, and himself mm -hmm. as founder but to join arguably the best run company maybe in the mm -hmm. world now and to be a large, important part of that. And I think Jamie found that attractive. Right, right. Which And you didn't want to hinder him from that. Did you see a bigger market for that? Our, it is tough. Our, I think Nest was coming at you. Our job is to support founders. And when they decide they want to sell, we never fight right. against them. Right. If I had my choice, I would, I would have rather taken more risk right. and tried to go long, but I'm a VC and that's what yeah, my job exactly. is to go but long. Yeah, exactly. But it's kind of hard to turn down. It's I hard. didn't want to sell makers Studios to Disney either, right, right? right? Like our my goal is to build long-term, lasting, successful companies that can mm -hmm. IPO and create communities around them. Well, but, not selling does have its appeal. Like that's you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't sell, Google didn't sell, didn't you know? But MySpace sold. But and, the road is yeah. lined with people who didn't sell and yes, eventually didn't absolutely. succeed. Also, yes, those agreed. stories just don't get agreed, told. Agreed. You know, we have collective uh, amnesia in memory. And honestly, I just I'm super proud of Jamie for getting to the finish line. I mm -hmm. think I think it's the largest tech acquisition yep. Amazon ever made. Yep, I know they paid more for Whole Foods, but the largest tech acquisition, and I'm super proud of him, and he's staying in LA, the team's staying in LA, Amazon's Smart investing in that. LA. Smart to do that. Um, it was, uh, I, I can't, I was sort of like, oh, the one thing that Amazon doesn't own or Google does. Now it they was, do. Now they do. What can I do? I can't resist Jeff Bezos, apparently. Um, so talk about, I mean, he also has created a sort of a juggernaut in, in Seattle in that regard. Well, they have Microsoft, and they've had a bunch of companies. Um, um, 
Talk about where you think trends are going. SoftBank has all these enormous amounts of money. I just interviewed the DoorDash CEO last night in Las Vegas at Chop Talk at our Code Commerce event. And I think it was $535 million, and half of that was from SoftBank. They're handing out checks of hundreds of millions of dollars. How are you all being impacted by them and what's happened? Because at first it was Mark Andreessen doing that, handing out giant sums of money. But now he's been... Mark Andreessen, essentially. <laughs> well, let me say it this way. One thing I'm sure you're aware of is the trend that companies are staying private longer. Yes. And there's an, a certain attractiveness to entrepreneurs to staying private and not being conditioned to the public markets. And because of that, capital is actually chasing the opportunity to still get investments because they can't wait until it goes public. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an appeal also for entrepreneurs. So I would also say... With this large pool of capital, not just SoftBank, but Tomasic, and there's a lot more sovereign wealth funds out of the Middle East doing direct investing. The LPs are investing, hedge funds are investing, mutual funds are investing. Two things are happening. One is founders are able to sell stock into secondaries so they can get some monetization and so they don't feel the pressure mm-hmm. to go public. And some of the seed and early funds are actually selling their stock in those transactions. Mm-hmm. And actually some VCs are, so it's actually being seen as a potential exit for some people. Um, But when large pools of capital come into companies at early stages, it distorts markets. And so there's going to be some positive stories and there's going to be a lot of negative stories too. godfather, like take this money or else kind of thing. (laughs) I've heard a couple where they say, take our money or we'll take it to your, we'll walk over to your competitor. Look, that's life. I mean, does that you, matter all the money is it, or, or does it really? You because remember the famous story, which is Steve Case running this little tiny company I called AOL. Book. And <laughs> he goes to see, I, I probably, you know, read it. Uh, he, he went to see Bill Gates and, you know, we can buy you or bury you, that which is lead, it going to be? That was the first line of my book. There you, you go. So I must remember that yeah. line. Yeah. And you think that's like, that's such common behavior. And I had that in my two startups. I had people saying, I can buy you, I can buy your competitor. And the first time I didn't listen to him and I just kept building. And the second time I thought, I'll have what's behind door number two. Mm -hmm. Those are very personal decisions. But of course, people feel that pressure. But then you look at companies like, I'm not so sure. Again, I hate saying negative things because I don't really know Mm -hmm. the company, but Let's just take as an example Magic Leap. Mm -hmm. The enormous amount of money going into a company pre-product launch, I Mm -hmm. think it just distorts so many things. What does it do? What What is it? Well, first of all, you take the pressure off of founders from launching products because right. if you can... If they're, just, if they're not to, desperate, they... You, you know, it, I always said necessity is the mother yeah. of all invention. Like if you give someone $2 million and they have to launch on $2 million and they have to wake up a little bit earlier mm-hmm. and not have as big a team and not waste money on parties and all this other stuff, sometimes it produces more innovation. Like mm-hmm. the scene I have in my head is Apollo 13, you know, when they're mm-hmm. trying to get the spaceship back yeah, and, to they, the, have and they have these all we have. 11 materials and you got to sit around and come up with some way to get the spaceship back. Like that's the mentality I have is I think the creative pressure of not being overcapitalized actually helps but with But here innovation. they are. So what is, what's going to happen with this? Is it just going to be a lot of failures? A lot I of think money? that... Uh, I mean, look at the dot-com era. There's not enough rat holes to shove all the money Well, down. look at the dot-com era. Right. We overcapitalize all the companies. It mm. distorts markets because 
if you can create a company that doesn't have to monetize and you have eight companies that don't have to monetize, the three that try to build successful business models can't because mm -hmm. why would you pay for product if I can get everything for free? Right, yeah. And so it does distort markets in the short term. I think when the markets eventually crash, I don't know when that's going to come. I've thought it was going to be three years ago, so don't listen to me. But eventually markets go through cycles and that capital, some of it will be pulled back out and to put into other yeah. uses. I love it's the guy from LA that's prudent. Non-spending. Um, then, th what about the big companies that are doing? There's, you know, one of the things a lot of startups here is saying, like, it's not the era of the startup; it's the era of the big companies now. Well, I think most of the innovation is still coming from startups. So, mm -hmm. if you look at the success of Facebook and Google and even mm -hmm. Salesforce, mm -hmm. a lot of their innovation now is coming through acquisition. Salesforce sure. just bought MuleSoft, was mm -hmm. six billion plus yep. dollars. And they had bought two or three companies before that. They bought Quip. They bought a number of companies. If you look at Facebook buying WhatsApp, buying Instagram, buying uh, Oculus, mm -hmm. I think they're buying innovation. And I think Google has done it too. And I don't think anything's wrong with that. I think that's going to continue to happen. It's just so hard to create the environment. When you're at Google and you're paid, I'm going to make it up $300,000 a year plus half a million dollar a year in stock grants and you can turn up when you want and it doesn't really matter if you don't win in your market. Mm -hmm. It just, it produces a certain right, conservatism. Right, so they can't, they don't think. Yeah, yeah, they I think it creates the wrong environment for it. And then there are the rare, unique breed of people who are just built to take the risk on to... Mm -hmm you know, create next generation products to go out there every day against all the odds, like Jamie Siminoff yeah. with Ring when everyone said well, he couldn't Amazon do it. Amazon too, you'd have to call them pretty innovative. Like it's for a big company, they've... I think Amazon is really an outlier. I yeah. don't understand yeah. what they're freaks of nature. They're so well, he's good. He's so hungry. He's always been like they're that. Just, it's unbelievable to me because he could just sit the rest of his life on a beach and so he's could his like great, that. great grandchildren. I was, uh, we had the head of Nordstrom at our code uh Commerce thing yep. yesterday, and I I told a story of going to I did a I worked for the Washington Post. So Nordstrom was invading all the cities with their innovative stores, and I was out there in Seattle to meet the Nordstroms, and I had extra time, so I went to see this little startup Amazon. You know, he wasn't little little, but he was little and had five people, and it was it was. <laughs> Like it was an afterthought. You may not know this, but our 90s. firm Three. was created by, so Eve Cicerone mm -hmm. was the head of North American investments for a retail company called Carrefour. If yes, you know Carrefour. of course, French company. French company. So, Which was very innovative. Very time. innovative. Yeah. And Denis Deferre, the co-founder, decided mm -hmm. he didn't want to come to the U.S. because he didn't want to compete with Walmart. Mm -hmm. So, But he wanted to learn from U.S. consumers who are leading consumers. So Carrefour ended up not just staying in Southern Europe. They were created in France but they went to Eastern Europe, China, South America. Essentially the Costco for people who don't Well know. before mm -hmm. Walmart did. Yeah. So he said, Eve, why don't you go invest in these companies in the U.S.? So he invested in a small company with three warehouses called Costco. Mm -hmm. Costco, yeah. They took 20% of Costco, 8% yeah. of Starbucks. They Very were investors innovative. in innovative Dick's retail. Sporting Goods, PetSmart, mm -hmm. Jamba Juice, P.F. Chang's, Ulta mm -hmm. Beauty and Cosmetics. And they basically dominated the category. Right. Um, but... Eve met Amazon in the mm -hmm. early days because all of the Costco team had seen their retail sales and the numbers right. were just up and to the right. Right, absolutely. And I think Jeff had like this outrageous price in mind, which was like $60 million valuation. Yeah. And companies back then were funded at like 5 or yep. $10 million valuation. Yep. He had a lot of ambition. Yeah. So 
I'm finished up talking about where we are. Right now we're in sort of a crisis around Facebook. Tech is disliked. There's all these massive technologies coming, automation, robotics, um, that could be problematic for society. It's not a good time for tech. Tell me where you think things are going from a venture perspective. What about I would say it's not a good time for democracies. No. Yeah. You know, it's like the we all thought that all the trends were heading in positive directions. And, you know, you could very easily talk yourself into dystopian future. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I think technologies have been more good than bad. I just shared this on Twitter yesterday. Like in all the dystopia that we see every day, I saw a tweet from a guy, I think he was in India, who was teaching poor uh, inner city people, homeless people, how to do design work using a product called Canva, I guess you Canva pronounce it. Canva is from Australia. Yeah, C-A-N-V-A. Mm-hmm. And I don't know led the company all that well. Led by a woman. They just raised uh, earlier did. this year did $40 million from Sequoia. Melody, a, Melanie, Melanie. Melanie mm-hmm. uh, at a billion-dollar valuation. I mm-hmm. don't know her, but I was reading a lot Listen about- Listen to my podcast with her. I will. Uh, I was trying to learn more about the company and the space. I'm just interested in it. And I see this tweet from this gentleman and he's using their product in a remote village in India to teach homeless people how to be better designers to improve their lives. And there's a lot of that in the world yeah. and we can focus well, on, the happy, our, shiny on our own little story. dramas. Right, you know. but it's pretty serious. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not serious. Robotics I'm just saying is serious. Th- AI th- is. There's, there's both. There's like the positive consequences of everything that's happening and there's the negative so consequences. So where are you looking at? Are you looking at cryptocurrency? Are you looking at... What is your, what is just that you are like, mm-hmm. So I'll tell you, so cryptocurrency, I, I'm not as big a believer in cryptocurrency, but the underlying technology, which you hear a blockchain. lot, this blockchain, yeah. I think is transformative. And so I'm spending a lot of time trying to understand that. I just released a primer video on YouTube. If you search on YouTube for Upfront Ventures, you can find my primer video and I release slides. And I'm trying to educate myself. And a lot of times by educating other people, right. it forces you to learn. Yeah, then so you can have discussions. Been, yeah. but, but I'll tell you what I spend my time on is computer vision. Hmm. And I'm a really big believer in computing, being able to interpret the physical world in better ways than we as humans can. I'll just give you some give examples. Example. So... I invested in a baby monitor. It's mm-hmm. called Nanit. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we help monitor the well-being of your child when they're sleeping. So the idea is uh, monitor less, sleep more, or sleep more, mm-hmm. monitor less. Mm-hmm. It's most of the people who had baby monitors, it was like, oh my God, is my baby dead? Is, are they alive yeah. or whatever? Yeah. So our goal is to give you stats every day to help you be a better parent and not feel like you need to rush in all the time. But a byproduct of that is we believe we can predict autism younger mm-hmm. than anyone else can because we believe from about six months on, we can start to see signs mm-hmm. that doctors yet can't diagnose. Mm-hmm. And I won't bore the podcast with why, but we have a bunch of data out of Israel to suggest that. But I believe cameras can also be used to predict Parkinson's because you develop a twitch in your sure. finger and a shuffle in your walk. Alzheimer's, you develop both a change in your voice pattern and a shuffle in your feet. And these things that observationally a doctor can't pick up because they see you once or twice a year, mm-hmm. 
a computer yep. can pick and up monitoring. the changes. You know, there's there's cardia here. There's a whole bunch of things. So so we also invest in a company here in uh, the Bay Area called Density, and mm-hmm. what they do is they hang a little device above doors that uses lasers to track the patterns of how people move around spaces. Yeah, and Mark, Mark Cuban was t- talking about a different one. Oh, did he near shopping malls and said to watch people's traffic patterns? Yeah, and so part of what we're doing, we're not in shopping malls. We're mm-hmm. used a lot in space planning, so working mm-hmm. with large people who have real estate, like you take a meeting room like this, is it used 80% of the time or 20% of the time? And of the 80% of the time it's used, does it have six people in it or two people in it? And it doesn't matter if you're a a small building, but if you're in a- See, you bring a fresh idea, computer, it's it's sensors. I'm obsessed with sensors. 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 I talk about sensors a lot. There's gonna be sensors everywhere. Industrial scale sensors, yeah. and I've invested in six companies in the oh. category and across all different applications. But other examples, um, insurance policies, like if you can't have too many people in a room, we're mm-hmm. doing line busting, so you can actually see how many people are in the line at certain mm-hmm. places that you want to go. We're helping businesses with things that sound mundane, like HVAC, like when do you turn on your heating and sure. electricity based Something on mundane. when employees come in. I think line mechanics are fascinating. So we, I, I spent an hour talking to the Disney expert on if this. If you're ever interested, I will show you a I'm demo from to, Density yeah. that we have um, a real-time monitor that shows you line patterns going into queuing up at restaurants. Ugh, I love that. I, literally, I spent an hour with the Disney person in charge. Like that person's a genius because they know how to move people around and it's things they say and signage and how you signal crowds. And it was The other thing riveting. that businesses don't know a lot about is something called tailgating. So mm-hmm. when you go into a building and someone swipes their cart, mm-hmm. people follow them in even though they're oh, not yeah, supposed to, that, right? Yeah. And so with density, we can track tailgating and we can Mm -hmm. help you know when there's a problem. But we do it with lasers, not cameras. So the important thing about that is Mm -hmm. we're building an anonymous service. In a world where people increasingly don't want to be monitored with cameras, Mm -hmm. we made a conscious choice to make it anonymous. Except we're always monitored. You may be monitored by other people, but mm-hmm. we've made a conscious choice for people to not That's be monitored. That's fascinating. It's interesting because right now this Facebook thing's about that. What are you following you around? Yes. Yeah, it's a really interesting, you know, it's computer vision. I like that, Mark. I, that is, I really, that you've made me think there for a second. I'm going to come see all these companies. Um, I want to finish up. You've run a big conference there too where you have everybody uh, in. You had the mayor, mayor of... Um, Los Angeles, who may be running for president, apparently. He said on stage with us that he is. That he is, okay. Um, it, would, is, is he have a good chance? I think he's probably one of six or eight people who could really do it. And yeah, I think he would make a great candidate. Yeah, it's interesting. I just did an interview with Anthony Scaramucci, and he thinks Trump will win if the Democrats put up a communist, essentially. <laughs> he thinks they're going to put up a communist, and yeah. that's why he's going to win. Instead of some, uh, Garcetti's sort of in the middle, isn't he? Sort of more... I mean, he's definitely a Democrat. Yeah. I think he's done a great job at protecting immigrants. Mm -hmm. He's done a great job at, you know, running the second largest city in the country. Mm -hmm. I think he's right on a lot of positions, but he's very Mm pro-tech. He's pro-innovation. He's pro-trade. But you do that in LA. You just sort of serve. I'm a big believer that international trade is a net positive for everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think our ailment as a country is the fact that we're trading with Asia. I Mm -hmm. think we get a lot more benefit from cheap products provided to everyone that give them more disposable income. But Mm -hmm. I believe that we need to take the gains that we have from being in a world economy and invest them in education and infrastructure for Mm -hmm. people affected. And so I'm a Democrat and I believe in taking those gains and reinvesting them. 
I'm not to the far left, so I don't believe in like Elizabeth Warren's view that we should not be part of TPP because I believe that China will just dominate trade in Asia and that's a lost opportunity for us. So lastly, tell me one thing that people don't, again, I don't want to regionalize you, but you are the most prominent venture capitalist in Los Angeles now. What is something that you think people should not, is wrong that people get up here and elsewhere about LA tech? The number one narrative that people have about LA Tech is they perceive it as just the place where you're building video and advertising and kind of lightweight tech. Right. And I think they misunderstand that we have phenomenal engineering talent that's, we're really building some big ambitious projects. Some of them are gonna be very successful. Maybe not at SpaceX level, but mm-hmm. that's a phenomenal success. But I'll just give you a couple examples. And I, okay. I will mention that they are upfront companies so that right, I'm not okay. sounding like I'm talking my playbook without disclosing that. But UBeam, which is a wireless energy company yeah. that there's, mm-hmm. you know, they've had some positive press and some skeptical mm-hmm. press, but they really are innovative and they've really pushed the boundaries. Mm-hmm. We have gotten direct feedback from the market that nobody has done the kind of wireless Great energy idea. transfer we debuted that them we've at done. Co- at all things to- and Meredith, in fact, you're right. I remember that. And Meredith's just fantastic. And mm-hmm. she's really, truly an entrepreneur and innovator. And um, I think she's going to build something very successful. You never mm-hmm. know. These are always mm-hmm. risks. Another is Rebecca Cantar, who has created um, a way to do cognitive assessment using computer games. So you run simulations where you have, I'll give you an example, a virtual world of fish, of coral, and plant types. And you have to assemble the right fish, coral, and plant types in an ocean environment with the right level of salinity and sunlight Mm -hmm. and depth to create a self-sustaining ecosystem. How you make the decisions tells something about how your brain processes information. And she built that because she wants the SAT to go away because she wants to teach children differently. Kids about to take it. We're teaching rote memorization to children where rote memorization isn't what's required. So her first client is McKinsey Uh and they have used it to start to uh, enhance their recruiting process. So they had, I don't know, a thousand people go through it and compared it against their own recruiting process. And they like it so much that they're now embracing it as a technology, but that's being built in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. it's real. So true there's so so the concept is we, we have it So it's the idea that it's not this like it's not hall, the latest We're building the, the, real the latest technology. Matt Damon startup. Correct. Although it does he have one? No, I'm kidding. No, but like the Kardashians <laughs> deserve oh, a lot of credit. You know, I'm a big fan. You can't insult a Kardashian to me. They deserve a lot of credit, and I, I think, had her on stage at Code Media. Everyone was shocked wonderful. by it. I think yeah. they've done a lot of really interesting things. Whether you like them or not, or like their messaging, it's still. They're very They're amazing. Fascinating. They're innovative people. people. They're amazing. Anyway, Mark Suster, thank you so much. Thank for you being for having here. me. I'm sorry I fuck up your name it. all the time, That's but right. it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. You're one of my favorite VCs to talk to because you're so smart. And I don't know if you know this, not all of them are. <laughs> um, but thanks again for coming. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps other people discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment, some of whom apparently live in Los Angeles. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. 
And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media, and our recent Code Commerce, which took place in Las Vegas last night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart.